0: Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Seth Kaplan is produced in conjunction with Mass Media, a Google partner, providing businesses with traditional and digital advertising strategy and implementation. MassMedia.net. Sponsorship info for the Airlines Confidential podcast is available at airlinesconfidential.com. Whatever
1: you hate about any ultra-low-cost airline anywhere in the world, it's all his fault. It's Ben Baldanza, former CEO of Spirit Airlines, who now teaches about how airlines work. It's not an exaggeration, is it, Ben?
2: (laughs) Not an exaggeration at all. Thanks, Seth. (laughs) And if you're looking for an airline expert on anything related to the airlines, except actually running one, look no further than NPR here and now, transportation analyst Seth Kaplan.
1: An emperor with no clothes. Yeah, pushing back from the (laughs) gate. This is Airlines Confidential, the show where we share the secrets of the airline industry and debate all the crazy things that uh, happen in the airline world each week. We're going to talk today about whether pilot training needs an overhaul. We'll
2: listen to a real customer complaint against an airline, and you won't believe who the customer is this time. That's in our finer wine segment. And we'll take a question from a customer who has a creative airline business idea. But first, let's prepare for takeoff with this week's
1: news. Things at the giant German airline Lufthansa, Ben, are back to normal after a one-day strike at the airline's catering division which is called LSG. The strike caused some delays and cancellations. Lufthansa is actually in the process of selling LSG to a company called Gate Group, which focuses on catering so that Lufthansa can focus on running an airline. At least that's the airline's perspective. LSG workers aren't happy. All that comes just weeks after Lufthansa flight attendants walked off the job for two days. That strike caused major disruptions. Uh, Believe me, I know it because my parents were in Italy, scheduled to fly home on Lufthansa the day after the strike. And as the unpaid travel agent to the stars, you can imagine, <laughs> I'm sure you have to do that too <laughs> for your family, Ben. I, I had to monitor all that. They made it home. Uh, major disruptions, meanwhile, also at South African Airways because of a strike by mechanics and flight attendants. That dispute is now mostly resolved. Operations back to normal. Mechanics at Express Jet, which is a regional airline owned by United, didn't go on strike. But they did picket the airline, saying the airline can't expect to attract and retain decent workers with what the mechanics say are below market wages. And workers from several groups at Finnair in Finland held a one-day strike. What's their gripe with the airline? Nothing. They struck in sympathy with Finnish postal workers who walked up their job as part of a separate dispute. Ben, that's a lot of strikes in recent weeks. Have they become more common or is that me just falling victim to recency bias and thinking (laughs) about what I've heard about lately?
2: Well, strikes in the airline business are a not uncommon, but not completely common occurrence. In the U.S., it's different than Europe. In Europe, they're more common. They have what uh, in the U.S. used to be known as wildcat strikes because the labor unions in Europe have the right to call a strike quickly and do it. In the U.S., labor law is covered by a law called the Railway Labor Act. That law as its name implies, was originally set up for the railroad industry and then later applied to airlines. And it does a number of things that affect both the airline operators and labor. But one of the things it does is it makes it much more difficult to strike because labor unions can't just call a strike willy nilly. They have to go through a formalized process and
1: it takes a long time. So it happens once in a while, but not that often. In fact, Ben, am I remembering incorrectly i'm just i'm just racking my brain the last major airline strike in the u.s is it one that you were a party to back way back in 2010 the spirit pilots uh because i can't think of and and i think it was 2010 if if i'm unless i'm remembering incorrectly, and i can't think of a big one since then
2: I can't think of a big one since then either. And that was also the first pilot strike in a long time. I think back since the mid-1980s, which goes to the point that strikes in the U.S. airline industry are not that common. Certainly disruptions and very long labor deals are. But in the world, it's more common because they don't have that unique structure of the Railway Labor Act that we have in the U.S. So I think all the things you mentioned – do seem to me like kind of a lot of things going on, but it also sort of fits the times of more power to workers and more power to unions. And that's a lot of the trend we see in the politics, right?
1: It sure is. Now, look, uh- in Europe one difference and I guess so they're so much more common but they seem to announce when they announce a strike a beginning and an end to the strike usually so I guess that's one thing if it's going to be more often at least whereas in the U.S. it, it just kind of uh, goes until things are settled in, in, in Europe it seems like it's this is going to be a 24 or 48 hour strike am I am I correct about that read
2: Yeah, I think you are correct about that. Yeah, when they're called in Europe, they usually are set for a specific time and maybe for a specific work group. Sometimes they're even at a specific location. Like, for example, and I'm just making this up, but the Air France employees in Paris could strike while the Air France employees in other stations wouldn't be striking. Right? So it's a... It is really quite different. In the US, the groups are represented as a whole. They, When they get to the point where they could strike, which is after a very long process of mediation, potentially arbitration, cooling off, maybe even a presidential emergency board that stops it from happening, then you get to the strike and it takes a long time. And then at that point, the whole group would go out.
1: Yeah, so much less common, but in some ways more disruptive, the rare times that it does happen in the US. So then let me ask you this, Ben, for travelers, I mean, all of us who travel, is there anything we can do when we're booking flights to avoid a strike? And like, here's what I'm thinking of. Okay, so the European airlines they know in advance uh, that there's going to be a strike on particular days, and by the time they know about the strike, they stop taking bookings for flights that are going to be affected. So I think it's hard to avoid a particular strike, but in terms of just everything we just talked about, right? European airlines, it's more common. If somebody's traveling between North America and Europe, or between Europe and you know, I don't know, China, let's say a place where where, where labor has very little power and, and strikes are very rare, is it? reasonable for somebody to purposely avoid booking the european airline because there might be a strike or is that getting too cute uh, you know, should people just book the airline that they would like to fly based on you know prices schedules and you know whether they like the airline and and, and just sort of not worry about this
2: i think that might be a little bit cute now if the uh the travel is absolutely essential that if it doesn't happen then you might be better off booking on a US airline if they fly where you're going only because you have way advance notice if anything's even likely to happen because again the labor unions aren't even allowed to strike until they go through this whole process if it's a you know if it's a big airline even if it's a little airline the media is usually good about reporting that so you would probably know if the airline you're planning to fly is in what's called that cooling off period. If they're not, they're probably not, they're not gonna be able to strike on your trip. Now that said, if it's not the most critical trip in the world, it's still not that common for strikes to happen even though they're loud when they do. I think the simple answer to all this is just buy travel insurance. There's travel insurance that covers what happens with that in that case, you might get there a day or two late by the time the insurance kicks in and buys you a ticket on another carrier, but it'll protect you. And I think that's the single best bet whenever you travel long distance to have that insurance because it's not just a strike. Other things can go wrong, too. You could get sick. Your hotel might not have a room for you. A lot of things could go wrong.
1: Yeah, yeah. And of course, European Airlines, another sort of flip side of all of this. On one hand, the strikes are more common. On the other hand, they have more obligations under what's called eu to. which airlines in Europe uh, have to provide all kinds of things for passengers in situations where, say, a U.S. airline wouldn't uh, have have those obligations. Uh, Ben, I want to turn to something that caught our eye. This is a piece in USA Today. We're an airline captain. His name is John Cox. Answers some reader questions. One reader asked him, what area of commercial aviation needs the most reform? Now, keep in mind, he's a pilot, so he focuses on operational issues more than commercial ones. Uh, But anyway, he said, quote, pilot training in the upcoming years is probably the most difficult issue facing commercial aviation. He talked about the need for pilots to develop their skills for both automated and manual flying. Now, he didn't mention the seven thirty seven Max, but that was the first thing that came to my mind. Uh, you know, almost everyone agrees that the aircraft design, at least the MCAS system, was flawed and needs to be fixed. But some of his observers ha- have said better skilled pilots might have overcome the problems. So on one hand, you have all that. Uh, on the other hand, in the aggregate, we know flying is about as safe uh, as it's ever been, e- even including those awful uh, uh, crashes and and, and others in recent years. So what we wouldn't want to do is, you know, pick your cliche, throw the baby out with the bathwater, have the cure be worse than the disease and so forth, right? So Ben, given all that, I want to ask you, first of all, whether you agree with the idea that pilot training needs a major overhaul, and if you do agree, what in fact would need to change?
2: Well, I read this story as well, and I think it's a little bit of a stretch to say that it's um, one of the most difficult issues facing commercial aviation. It's an issue. It's an important issue, but I don't think it's one of the most difficult facing commercial aviation. Clearly, airplanes technology is changing. I can remember back at Spirit when I first got there, for example, when we were converting from the MD-80 airplane, which is an older model airplane, still flown by Delta and some, um, to the newer at the time and still now new A320 model airplane. It was a big training for the pilots because the A3, the MD-80 is like the 737, uh, a direct the pilots are directly connected to the surface of the airplane where the A320 is what's called fly by wire, meaning you're controlling a computer, which then controls surfaces of the airplane. There were a couple of pilots at Spirit who couldn't make that transition. They just <laughs> couldn't get their head around the fly by wire. Now that's uncommon. Most can. But I think that fly-by-wire is more and more common. So training needs to recognize that not only is fly-by-wire more common, but more technology and technology solving more flying problems is going to be more common like the MCAS system. So I think the idea that training has to continue to evolve to address the real needs of new commercial airliners as they come on. One of the Complaints that I'll make about the handling of the 737 MAX issue was that I don't think Boeing and the FAA together in some combination did enough to explain to pilots how different this new airplane was. Now, some airlines, like those in the US, went ahead and trained their pilots for those differences, and but not all everyone in the world did. So the 737 MAX was different enough, and it needed to be trained for those differences. The airlines that trained for it didn't have the issues that those that didn't as well. And so pilot training is a huge issue. It's going to evolve as new airplanes come in place, like the 220, like whatever the next generation Airbus or Boeing airplanes will be, training's going to have to evolve with those. But I don't think that today there's a crisis in training. I don't think pilot training is in a bad position today. But clearly, pilots need to be well-trained to fly the airplanes that they're flying.
1: And we should point out that there are U.S. pilots who have said that not enough was done in in terms of uh, explaining the differences. We know a lot of them didn't know about MCAS per se, but the reality is that those crashes didn't happen in the U.S. Granted, it's a small sample size. We can't say for sure. We know some pilots encountered similar issues and and were able to overcome them in in the U.S., uh, according to reports. You, You know, Ben, like a lot of people in airline management, you were a commercial guy first, but then when you're running an entire airline as you were doing it, Spirit, of course, you have to understand a lot about the operation too. What I would ask you is, was there anything that surprised you about that side of things in general and maybe about the job of pilots in particular, either something you assumed that turned out to not be true or just something you hadn't even ever imagined that turned out to be the case?
2: Well, aircraft and airline operations are a very complex set of things. They're not all that complicated in terms of what you want to do, right? You want to take off on time. You want to deliver the bag on time. You want to make sure the pilot flight attendant shows up at the right plane on time, right? None of those <laughs> things are that complicated to understand what you're trying to do. But they're certainly complex with a lot of moving pieces, a lot of constraints in terms of the way airports are, the way labor contracts are and such. You know, my first... Go around with true operations was when I was at Taka, and I ran the operation down at Taka Airlines in Central America, and that was a much smaller airline. And that gave me my first sense of what running an operation, having to think about how the airports are doing today, what the pilots are doing, how we can schedule the pilots all came in place. So by the time I got to spirit, I had a little sense of what I was doing, even though it wasn't the exact same thing. Also, When you're in the commercial side of the airline business and you're in charge of the airline schedule, you need to be highly collaborative with the operating team because the schedule an airline flies drives a lot of things that affect the operation, like how much crew you need, where you need to park airplanes, where you can reasonably do your maintenance. So the aircraft, the airline, I'm sorry, uh, planning and scheduling group is, if they're doing their job well, well tied into the operations. So when I got to Spirit, I had a good sense of what the operations were, but that doesn't mean I didn't have a lot to learn. The pilots at Spirit who had uh, started at Spirit, for example were largely commuter pilots. Their view was they were going to work at Spirit for a few years, then go get a job at a real airline. That's what what one of them told me, right? By the time we had sort of got things going at Spirit and they realized they could have good careers there, that was a little different. But there were some things in the pilot contract that made it hard to manage against a contract that had been set up for commuter pilots, for example.
1: And so- And and just to stop, when you say commuter pilots, these are people who lived- Far away from the base where they were scheduled out of. So they had to yes, get to work exactly in right. Detroit or Fort Lauderdale, but they lived in, in some other place.
2: Yes, including like Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. And yeah. places <laughs> like that. <laughs> that's right. And also, like, let me give you a flight attendant example. The model at Spirit, as we converted to a very unbundled price structure model, required more work to be done by the flight attendants. They didn't just have to read the safety announcements and be there for your safety and pour you a, you know, a Coca Cola or something, we wanted them to actively sell on board. And some of them were very comfortable with that and some of them weren't. So that created issues about what requirement could we make of the flight attendant selling and was the incentive we were paying them correct and did it provide the right kind of incentive? And so whether it's the, the business model of the airline changing or or the labor contracts coming up for renewal. There's always something going on in the airline that makes for operational reality. The thing about operators in the airline business is life is only as good as what did you do for me in the last 24 hours, right? <laughs> right today, there's snow up in the Northeast. Yeah. All the operators are dealing with that reality Tomorrow's going to be a different day. And certainly there may be some effects from today in terms of airplanes being in the wrong place or crews being in the wrong place. But airport operations are very much a 24-7 kind of job. And what I'm focused on today may be completely different than what I had to be focused on 48 hours. And operators have to have that kind of mindset, which is very different than sort of the commercial or other sides of the airline, which have to be thinking 60, 90 Sometimes even longer, more days ahead if you're thinking about buying airplanes.
1: Was there ever a time when uh, you know we mentioned earlier about how you were the last airline CEO to take a major pilot strike in the, in the U.S. Right? Of course, it could have been anybody. It was just the you know that it was that point in the cycle of, of of that pilot contract. But you you were there. Um, was there? ever a time when a, a labor group or you know pilots in particular we were talking about but could be anybody kind of convinced you of something where you started off from a management perspective of oh come on you know why is this so important but then you came around on something where where uh, where you said yeah you know what they have a point pilots as
2: a group are very smart people they're very dedicated to their craft and in general pilots in the US at least do a terrific job at the job they do they always have good ideas and they see the airline for what it really is right they fly into every station they see the st- the airports that work well and don't they see the ones that have the the jet bridge ready to go and those that aren't they see the customers on the airplane so a good ceo will listen to their pilots not because They're pandering to them, but because they have really good information about where the airline is. I certainly learned a lot of things from the pilots at Spirit about the way Spirit could be a better airline, be more reliable, be better for our customers. And especially as we were changing the business model to fly the airplanes more hours per day and try to make the turn shorter, many of them had very good ideas as to how we could make those things not just look good on paper, but actually happen day to day in the operation so um i think a good airline listens to all of its people the ones who are on the front lines just as you know in life we need to listen to first responders yeah. and other people who make all of our lives better it's the same kind of idea
1: yeah well now at cruise altitude here on airline's confidential it's time to take a question from a listener it's that plus an extra special fine or wine next
0: Sponsorship info for the Airlines Confidential podcast is available at airlinesconfidential.com. With Ben Baldanza, I'm Seth Kaplan.
1: This is Airlines Confidential. Fine or whine is next. But first, this week's question is from Jose in Cologne, Germany. Jose submitted his question on the airlinesconfidential.com website. Jose asks... Why would or wouldn't a ULCC, that's an ultra low cost carrier, an airline like Spirit or Ryanair so forth, operating flights from Cancun work? Let's imagine, Jose continues, let's imagine this airline uses the A320 family aircraft, primarily the A321XLR, focusing on connecting South America and North America, since the A321XLR does not have the range For flights to Europe from there, Uh, this is obviously we're talking here, Ben, about somebody who who does a lot of thinking and knows something about aircraft and 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 airline networks too. I think Uh, and and interesting because this is not a totally imaginary scenario. Uh, This is something that airlines have, have have thought about when they look at Copa which is very successful uh, with a hub in Panama City you know kind of perfectly situated geographically between North and South America uh, Cancun has a little bit of that same geography doesn't it it's not as far west as Mexico City so you know cities in the eastern part of, of North America connecting them down with uh, South America uh, Cancun laying on a, on, a, on a pretty good line what what do you think of Jose's idea
2: I, well I think Jose's idea is interesting but not really all that likely to happen uh, for yeah. a couple of, for a couple of reasons first of all there's lots of ways to get from North America to South America not only is there Copa Airlines which runs a very successful hub in Panama doing exactly what Jose suggests to be done in in Cancun but uh, airlines have, Put business plans together and tried to get financing for startups in Cartagena, Colombia, in the Dominican Republic to do the exact same kind of thing to connect North America to South America. His use of the 321XLR, that's a very long-range airplane. You actually wouldn't need that from Cancun. You could do fine with the 320s or just the regular 321 or 321LR and get most of South America and North America from Cancun because of its position. The real problem I have with this one, Seth, is that Cancun is almost all destination traffic. Very few people travel Outward from Cancun. And that makes it difficult as a hub basis. To be a successful hub airline, you need local traffic, meaning people who are flying locally to and from, to and from the place, not just people going there on vacation, which is why you don't see that many pure destination vacation spots be successful big hubs. Also, Cancun is very seasonal. People go there certain times a year. They don't go there all year. So for those two reasons, I don't think Cancun is the ideal place for a hub. And that's the real reason. Not that if you got the cost right, maybe you couldn't make something in a go. But it's not only the COPAs and the potential growth carriers and places like Cartagena and the DR that you're going to compete with. It's United's hub in Houston. It's Delta's hub in Atlanta. It's American's hub in Dallas. It's American's hub in Miami. All of which carry traffic from North America to South America pretty effectively.
1: Yeah, and, and what you said about the the destination traffic. I mean, to be clear, it was Spirit in Fort Lauderdale. Fort Lauderdale is is more of a, a of a destination. I'm using that as an example because it's it's has. Sort of similar geography. More of a destination than an origin, but not to the degree that Cancun is, right? I mean, Fort Lauderdale's kind of a 60-40, 70-30 split, whereas Cancun it would be upwards of ninety ten. Is that the distinction that you're making there?
2: Yeah, that is the distinction. And uh, for someone who lives down there, you know this, Seth. Fort Lauderdale Airport is actually sort of smack in the middle of six million people too. Yeah. And so it's uh so that make gives it a reasonable origin spot as well. I mean, plenty of people. Fly from South Florida, whether it's Palm Beach or Miami or Fort Lauderdale proper, out as well as come in. It is clearly a destination. I mean, Palm Beach was the first city in the U.S. built as a destination. Yeah. I think that's a sort of a fun thing about Palm Beach. Uh, but the local, I should say the the local origin versus destination pattern of South Florida looks very different than a Cancun and looks different than even a Dominican Republic to some extent, although there are plenty of people on the Dominican Republic who need to fly out also. Cancun is just, uh, it's mostly a destination. And even in that part of Mexico is not the most populous part of Mexico. So the thought that people would you know, drive or somehow otherwise get to Cancun for their local trip out of Mexico doesn't seem that realistic to me.
1: Yeah, I noticed Interjet, a low cost carrier, you wouldn't really call them an ultra low cost carrier in, in Mexico, has talked about building up Cancun. They've used the word hub and it was curious. I jumped online to see, like, you know, what kinds of connections they sell there. What it looks like uh, they do is sell connections that just happen to exist, but they don't schedule it at, at all as a hub. So, for example, I was able to find an itinerary from Montreal to Lima uh, Peru, uh, the geography works, uh, but there was like a 10 overlay, 10 hour layover in one direction and I think a five hour layover in the other. So, so they, they, you know, they'll sell it to you. And I think that's kind of what spirit does in Fort Lauderdale, but the difference is that spirit has so much density in Fort Lauderdale, uh, other airlines sell connections in Fort Lauderdale too. Uh, whereas there's not nearly that kind of a, a, a of of a of a nucleus of of a schedule in Cancun for interjet to really call it a hub and 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 sell uh anything resembling a a convenient connection
2: yeah i th- i think that's right Mexico has had you know several carriers. Long term, they now have several successful operating lower cost carriers. Interjet's not exactly low cost, but they're yeah. still successful down there in some ways in terms of they're still flying. <laughs> they, they're getting a lot of pressure from Viva Aerobus and Volaris, two better structured cost carriers there. Right. And, um, they're not the first ones to think about sort of building up in Cancun. There are, There was a company in the U.S. called Apple Vacations, which chartered airlines to fly. And most, a lot of their charter was to Cancun to support packages that they sold, vacation packages they sold to Cancun. So plenty of airlines fly into Cancun. Frontier has put more service in there. Spirit flies there. I mean, a lot of airlines fly to Cancun. They'll build up service in the peak and then pare it down a little bit in the off peak. And that's kind of what Cancun needs. It's uh, not really a a 365-day-a-year destination.
1: Yeah. Well, do you have a question for us? Uh, you can call us at 305-379-7429 and record a question for us anytime during the week. Again, that's uh, the US area code 305-379-7429. Uh, you can email us questions at airlinesconfidential.com. Again, that's questions, plural, at airlines, plural, confidential.com. Airlines Confidential, all one word. Or do what Jose did. Jump on the airlinesconfidential.com website. You'll see a form on there to submit your question well beginning our initial descent on today's show it's time for fine or whine we listen to an actual customer complaint and then we talk about whether the complaint is fine or if that customer is just whining ben you have a complaint
2: yes uh this one is from wait a minute seth in washington dc
1: yeah seth in washington dc who could ah wait a minute yeah it's me (laughs) I'm I'm the cranky customer this week Um, so Ben here's the story Um, my family and I were flying from BWI Baltimore Washington International Airport to Fort Lauderdale on Spirit because it was even though we live in DC it was so much cheaper so it was worth going up there for it and uh, flying down for Thanksgiving so we uh, arrive at the gate, and I already knew that the flight was oversold, uh, overbooked at least. We uh, I checked in nearly twenty four hours earlier so that we could get our three seats together without paying for them, and uh, <laughs> and, uh, and 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 the website told me. Uh, flights oversold, would you like to potentially volunteer? And I clicked sure that you're not really giving up anything at that point, just, just letting them know that you might be interested. So uh, we talked about this in an earlier episode, uh, all of this, the, the overbooking and over sales. And, and I mentioned that when I was younger, I used to do this all the time, don't really get the opportunity anymore. And this was a rare time where I was i was flying down with my family, as the three of us, my wife and daughter. And there were a, a couple more flights that night that I knew maybe we would get onto. And if not, uh, we could stay over if they put us up in a hotel. We just didn't have to be anywhere first thing in the morning. Uh, so I said sure, and they ended up needing exactly three people. So in other words, three extra people showed up for the you know for the flight. Then they had seats, and they said, "Listen, we can give you two hundred fifty dollars each in vouchers for future travel, and we can get you on a Southwest flight an hour later." We were scheduled on the eight PM Spirit flight. They said, "We'll put you on Southwest at nine PM." I said, "Sure, that's great." Uh, Total of $750 to fly, let's be honest, the more comfortable airline, <laughs> <Get> some, <laughs> a little more legroom, get some free snacks, and, uh, and and get down there an hour later. Absolutely. Sign us up. So they they got the flight off the gate, the Spirit flight, and of course they have to first work on closing out the flight. By the time they got around to booking us onto Southwest, they they just kind of ran out of time to get us on that nine o'clock flight, and, and they were very apologetic. They said, "Listen, we we're going to get you on the ten fifteen flight, and because we feel bad about that, we're going to give you an extra two hundred fifty dollars each." Okay, so so now I'm now we're up to fifteen hundred dollars in vouchers, right? We're we're we're, we're earning seven hundred fifty dollars an hour. <laughs> I have never earned anything close to that, and I'm not even working for it, right? I I, uh, I think I sat down and, and started putting together uh, our, our last our last podcast. <laughs> script, right? In, in in the in the t- time in between. So wait a minute. Why is this a complaint, right? <laughs> where, where that's, that's what I'm wondering I'll, right now, Seth. Right, right, right. <laughs> I'll get to that in a minute. If you're curious, because this is just sort of the the inside baseball part that I found fascinating. So uh, we got over to to Southwest. I'll get to the complaint in a minute. And uh, I, I I I gave them our rapid rewards numbers, right? Why not? Might as well. Might as well get some points for that the the thing that was neat about doing that is that that then enabled me later to log in and see a receipt for travel. Now Spirit and Southwest don't have a, an agreement which some airlines have where where one airline can can sort of put somebody on an, another airline at a deep discount if there are seats. Spirit when they put you on Southwest, they're basically just just buying seats on on Southwest and Sure enough, well, I'll let you guess. Do you want to guess how much it cost Spirit to put each of us onto Southwest that night? Well,
2: my experience in booking Southwest last minute is they're quite expensive. So <laughs> I'm guessing it cost them about maybe six hundred a person. That's yeah, a it was, was four
1: hundred eighty one dollars a person. Okay, so a total okay. of of yeah of of one thousand four hundred forty three dollars to put us onto Southwest. So that's hard costs cash out the door, plus. $1,500 in vouchers, which for Spirit, although it's kind of hard to to, to to really tabulate the, the, the true cost of vouchers, uh, the reason it's hard is because, you know, it's not cash out the door, right? So if an airline, let's say an airline uh, doesn't have very high load factors, doesn't have very full flights, and they give it to somebody who takes a trip that they wouldn't have otherwise taken, Right in that case, not really much of a cost to the airline because the seat would have flown empty and it's money the person wouldn't have otherwise spent. But in the case of Spirit, which flies really full, uh, and in in our case, which you know we fly them not not all the time. I mean, they're not our first choice. I don't think they're many people's first choice, but we're willing to fly them. The, you know, the cost is somewhat higher because you have. What in just to go into the economics for a minute for people who are interested, you have both displacement and dilution, right? So, displacement if I use a voucher on a flight and that prevents somebody else who would have paid real money from flying on that flight, that displaced that revenue. And dilution uh, that's because if I would have flown that flight anyway, if I had to pay money and instead of a voucher. Well, that then that's money they didn't get from me. So so they've they've diluted that. So so for an airline like spirit, the cost of vouchers, and you could tell me if i'm if I'm on point here Ben, but, uh, but although you can't use the vouchers for bags and although there's some other restrictions that I was aware of, uh it, it, it's it's a fairly high cost. am I correct about that?
2: You are correct about that. Although the uh, the dilution is less a big issue than displacement, the likelihood that the voucher is going to displace revenue is high because they do run very full. The likelihood that you would have paid to fly them anyway is a little less.
1: It's I somewhat think. less for for an average customer. That makes sense. So anyway, here's Spirit. Uh, you know, out nearly fifteen hundred dollars in real cash, and out somewhere uh, uh, something less than fifteen hundred dollars in true cost with the vouchers. But but but. You know, in our case, I mean, we fly Spirit a lot. You know, so it's probably somewhere at least half that, right? So we're talking. This has cost them, you know, somewhere well upwards of two thousand dollars. So, so I'm uh, still waiting for the complaint. <laughs> <then. laughs> so then I said, okay, this is great because I haven't yet booked a flight that I want to book for late December, uh, kind of right after right after Christmas, going down to Florida it's just been it was very expensive i kept watching to, you know for we talked about this too in a previous episode sometimes the cheapest tickets are not that far uh in advance they hadn't yet dipped it's still almost $200 one way i said perfect i'm going to use the vouchers for these for uh, for this so i jump online and uh you know i find the flight. I, I, I input the information that I have about the vouchers, which was not much. They had told me when we were at the airport, they said, Hey, just go ahead, run down to Southwest. Uh, w- it'll just be associated with your record locator number. It'll be in there. Don't worry. Uh, and, uh, and, and so I, I, I went and did that. It didn't work. Okay. Uh, and I have to say the people at the airport were, were as nice as you could ever ask for anybody to be. I called spirit and I actually got through right away to, 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 to a friendly agent. And there were two problems with the voucher. Now, one problem was that at the airport, probably just because they were working quickly, they had put all of the vouchers under my daughter, my four-year-old daughter's name. And, and, uh, so the the agent at first said, well, so that means you have to list her first on the reservation. But the problem is that the, the, the system won't let you list a child first. Uh, They're going to be last. So I told them that, they said, well, you have to go through the, the help center online, sort of essentially email them and tell them what's wrong. I said, uh. But sure enough, I, I submitted that online. And guess what? I got a reply back within hours. They fixed it. They reissued the vouchers. I mean, all of that highly impressive, right? The other problem, though, Ben, was that it turns out that there are blackout dates on these vouchers, and I wasn't able to use these vouchers for the date. It was December twenty sixth. I was trying to book, and that was that date was blacked out. Is what the agents told me. Now, uh, I've gotten vouchers many times in my life from different airlines, and in my experience, the vouchers always spend like cash. You know, it, it just you, you book a ticket, and 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 the. Uh, there's no restriction. I mean, you know, the 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 value of the voucher is sort of controlled by the fact that, well, you know, the tickets are more expensive when uh, obviously at a, at a high demand period. So maybe you could use a voucher to travel two or three times if you're booking cheap flights, where you're only going to get to use it for, you know, for one trip when it's expensive. But I've never had an airline tell me that I couldn't use it. I never saw any fine print because it was all oral Uh, You know, even when they sent me those reissued vouchers, I didn't see anything there. Now I completely believe them. I'm not saying anybody's you know misrepresenting. I believe them. You know, two different agents told me that that yeah, they're blacked out. They read me the same blackout dates. I'm sure it's all true. But Ben, am I being ungrateful? I mean, the airline gave me fifteen hundred dollars in vouchers spent almost another fifteen hundred dollars to put me on a better airline they got me to florida two hours after i was supposed to be there anyway and, and yet i i felt like the, the like this wasn't what i what i bargained for is it wow fine? That's, is, that's it fine or is it story. a wine
2: <laughs> well you know
1: um i think
2: i think it's closer to fine than a wine but let me tell you why uh, it's uh the reality is they should have told you were when you made the decision up front. I mean, you didn't have to take the vouchers, right? They could have – three other people might have come up and said, we'll take the vouchers. Yeah, and if right, they had, they had, on they, your had they
1: had a total of six volunteers. Uh, yeah.
2: Okay. So if they had been completely transparent, what they would have said is we're going to give you – uh, $250 per person. These vouchers are good. Most of the year, they do have some blackout dates. Anybody interested, like if they said something like that and then you still said, yeah, I want to do it. Then learn later on that the blackout dates they have are exactly the date you want to travel. Then you could say, well, my bad. I knew there were blackouts. I didn't do it. But if you never knew that and you based your decision to volunteer Based on the fact that you were going to get this voucher and not have that much of a delay in terms of how much later you'd get there, then I would I will put some culpability and say it's a it's, it's a it's it's a little bit of your wine is fair because the airline should have said that given how, what time you got there. And what you ended up recovering as a result for what you got there, though, I think it's kind of maybe a bit of a whine to say you didn't get a good deal. You got a pretty fair deal, I think, arriving only a couple hours late and $1,500 you can use at some point, maybe not the days after Christmas you want to fly but there's some credibility to the wine because they should have told you there were blackout dates.
1: And that was my feeling. If they had told me all of that, honestly, I would have taken it anyway. I just felt like, and this is kind of how it is with Spirit, anytime something is sort of, non-industry standard. To me, they have a little bit of a responsibility to call that out. Just just that spirit has done a better job over the years of, of making it very clear when you book their tickets, hey, uh, you know, it doesn't include bags, doesn't include a seat assignment, all of that. And, and, and I think people can't say that they're surprised anymore after they go through the booking path and have one of those things happen. This is one where I sort of felt like customers maybe in those very early days when it was less clear. And, and, and they would say, look, I've just never had this happened to me before, and I've flown all the time. i mean, obviously I'm somebody who does fly all the time. I cover the industry, and I I had no idea about that, and and so, uh, so so that was yeah. I mean, if I'm being honest, I, I would have taken the deal anyway, and and in fact, I already booked a different trip. Uh, I mean, I haven't managed to. Of course, it's a low demand variant, so I didn't use all fifteen hundred dollars. I booked a fifty six dollar flight to Tampa <laughs> later in in January, and so forth. But uh, but it it, it right on every other level, it it, it was a good deal for us but i i, I but I, but it was just something that that i felt wasn't uh, clear to me and i don't want to place any individual blame like i said those agents actually at BWI were excellent everybody i dealt with with the airline it was all a very pleasant experience it just wasn't something where i right except for what they told you yeah. <laughs> exactly
2: <laughs> well you know I, I don't think that spirit's unique in putting blackouts on vouchers but they might be i but i didn't think they were although i agree with you it's not a that common. And certainly if you're getting a voucher, it's not like they would have to list you every, you know, you can't use this exactly on these dates or on these flights. But if they just made a generic thing of like, you can use these for most flights, right. sometimes yep. they might give you a voucher that's good in the domestic 48, and not internationally, sure. for example, they would say that. I think um, what this whole story brings up though, Seth, too, is an interesting point about airline travel, which is so many things encompass an airline trip. And when just one of them feels a little bit off, it puts suspect on the whole trip, right? You can have a a flight that leaves right on time and everyone's real nice and your seat's comfortable and you even like the food. Some of it's even free, right? And the person next to you is really interesting if they're not (laughs) traveling with you. And then you get to the airport and you've got a whole 20 minutes because there's someone on your gate and this whole flight stinks. <laughs> right, right, right. I mean, that's what traveling and, and airlines is like. And you certainly sure. experience that with I got there two hours later, I had $1,500 that I could use sometime in, in my pocket. I flew on an airline that gave me free drinks or free snacks at least. And I'm still not, all that happy. I mean, that's the yeah. reality
1: of this. Yeah. Industry. In fact, when you get a survey after you fly Delta, at least as of a couple years ago, I don't know if this is still the case, but they'll ask you all these questions about how were the flight attendants, did the pilots provide good information, and then there's this random question in the middle of it. It says, "Were you seated in a middle seat?" And the reason is that they know that people who are seated in a middle seat have a different perception of the flight from everybody. Else. Same person. If you're if you're on the window or an aisle, you're you're happier than if you're in a middle seat. But yeah, it, it, it's uh, they use that to calibrate the responses because if you're cranky after a flight, but you were in a middle seat, then you know the food tasted worse, and the flight attendants weren't as nice, <laughs> and, and all of that. So they're not going to blame the people as much as if you were seated in a. Uh, in a a nice seat. Well, here we are on final approach that does it for Airlines Confidential this week. Please fasten your seatbelts and ensure your seatbacks and tray tables are in their upright and locked positions. And remember, we'd love to hear your questions at 305-379-7429 or email us questions at airlinesconfidential.com or jump on the airlinesconfidential.com website.
0: From the Airlines Confidential Studios, I'm Seth Kaplan.
2: And I'm Ben Baldanza. Talk to you soon.
0: Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Seth Kaplan is produced in conjunction with Mass Media, a Google partner, providing businesses with traditional and digital advertising strategy and implementation. Massmedia.net. Sponsorship info for the Airlines Confidential podcast is available at airlinesconfidential.com.